0: This is Emma Clark here for the Brooklyn Public Library. I'm here with Marty Needleman, the Co-Executive Director and Chief Counsel at Brooklyn Legal Services Corporation A and a longtime Williamsburg resident. So, hello. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us today and be recorded for the project. It's for Our Streets, Our Stories. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about how long you've lived here and been working in Williamsburg? Actually, I'm a newcomer. I came in 1969 um right from law school i was a i was a vista volunteer lawyer and uh i had grown up in east new york my first 18 years on the same block in east new york white flight we were forced out lived two years in canarsie then i so i lived in brooklyn my whole life uh at that point went to boston university law school after brooklyn college and loved boston it was the 60s and i thought i was gonna end up in boston Wanted to do public interest stuff. There was no jobs available. Got a, a joint VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, as a lawyer. And, got into a, and I, was gonna go, I thought I, I was going to go to Texas or Oklahoma and then come back to Boston, which I loved. I ended up in a special program they had, which was two years rather than one year. And we interviewed the people who had been in the program, the five lawyers who had been in the program before that. And one guy, Arnie Rothbaum, my, my, ended up being my mentor, had a great description of what he was doing at that time. So I joined, there. I decided to come to Williamsburg for two years. I've been here ever since. Wow. And um, tell us a little bit about growing up in Brooklyn since you've been here for your whole life. Well, it was uh, my, my block, Alabama Memory Avenue in East New York. It uh, was like a little village. It was, at that time, it was all working class and poor uh, Jewish people. Mm-hmm. The, the Jews originally came to the Lower East Side and then the next generation, the, the business people move, and the middle, more middle class mainstream Jews, uh, non Hasidic Jews, uh, moved to Williamsburg, right across the bridge. The poor Jews, the working class and, and, and lower income Jews, moved to East New York and Brownsville. So my family uh, moved to East New York. And we lived in the same block for 18 years. And it was like a village. Um, my, my, my elementary school was a block from my house. And then, uh, but it was, people uh, were super friendly. Everybody knew each other, been there for ages. And uh, so it was, you walked out the block and people were, you know, you, you knew everybody. And mm-hmm. it was a very, it was a, like a village. It was very, so that when white flight happened, when Puerto Ricans started moving in, and all the whites, went, we were the last white family, the uh, last white family on, on our block. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very touching to me because I felt like I lost my home, mm-hmm. my, 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 my town. And so, actually, I realized that a lot of that that had an impact on my future life in terms of defending people's right to stay and trying to preserve communities, which is what what happened here. And the fact is that after I moved to Williamsburg, I've been in Williamsburg ever since. I live on the same block in Williamsburg for the last forty since 1972. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, 33, uh, uh, 43 years, 43 years on the same block, and. uh, been in break the whole time, so, so it, it, it defined a lot of my life and my work uh, by the, those experiences as a, as a young person and, uh, until I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Was there anything particularly vivid that you remember or unique about growing up in the Jewish community in Brooklyn? Just that it was very supportive, like I said, it was a village. Most people in those days, the world has changed a lot since then, but most days most people had been come from Europe prior generations. My parents were both born in the United States, but my grandparents were from Europe, from Russia. And um, so everybody was, there was no conservative or reformed Jews, it was all orthodox, but mostly non-observant orthodox. So like us, we kept kosher in the house, but we ate Chinese food outside. <laughs> we, we kept uh, certain holidays, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Passover, Pesach, but nothing else, not, not the Sabbath, because my father worked, my father's a postal worker. Mm-hmm. I, was, I worked in the, he was a clerk in the, in the main post office. And uh, so he had to work on the Sabbath. So he, did. we were not Sabbath observers, and we were not. Uh, we didn't follow other Jewish holidays like Shabbos or uh, or other, uh, certain other holidays. So it was just a, a very, and many people. I th- I'd say most of the people were like that. Uh, and we went, to, uh, after, we, school, we went to Hebrew day school. We went to public school, but went to Hebrew Day schools afterwards. And it was a very. Um, Warm and, uh, support, like I said, it was like a village. People were very supportive and united in a lot of ways, also neighbors and very neighborly. And, uh, nice. And tell us a little bit about what you do here at Brooklyn Legal Services. Well, when I started out, as I said, I was a Vista And I, and I was the reason why I was pulling because Arnie Rothbaum at the time, uh, my pre- like I said, my predecessor my mentor, no was uh, working with parents' associations and community groups. In the struggle for uh, community control of schools, the Ocean brownsville days. This is 1969. Yeah. And it was the height of that struggle over community control. It was, much part, of, it was part of a much larger movement afoot: civil rights and uh, and, and community control. And uh, very successful. And, and was involved organizing. And it was. It wasn't. We did legal work. Mm-hmm. but It was also part of larger struggles. Yeah. And uh, so then. I, I did that for about three years, exclusively education-related work with with those groups. And then uh, the world changed. The city accommodated those things. There was elections for community school boards and things like that. So it kind of changed and it kind of petered out in a, in a successful way. <coughs> so then, in around the early 70s, um, it switched and it, 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 I, I worked with community groups so the next phase of what they were involved with was the struggle to get uh, local workers into the construction trades. So there was a massive amount of construction going on. So for example in 1976 Woodall Hospital 500 units opened up um, the uh, uh, Verizon, whatever it was called in those days Bell Telephone and a new ma- major building opened up, constru- was constructed and opened up um, there was a lot of new housing being built in the, in the early 70s as a result of the, uh, the uh, really the democratic administrations that place fairly funded housing so there was um, there were three developments well public ha- well th- three new developments 1500 apartments were constructed in that period of time uh, uh, near the Williamsburg waterfront in South Williamsburg so there were a lot of job construction jobs available and in those days construction jobs were unionized, and they were all white, Italian, and Irish workers. And it was, hand was father-to-son hand-me-downs. So in order to get the jobs, we had to demonstrate on the sites, stop construction very often, and organized and mobilized uh, uh, to uh, get people on the construction sites locally here, and then they were merged into the union. And so that was a very successful campaign. It was wars, but it was very successful. There were demonstrations where people got arrested and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and actually, that was in conjunction with Fightback, which was doing similar things in Manhattan. It was actually a Brooklyn Fightback, and we did it at some other, other sites. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Hello. Good, good. I'm actually in the middle of an interview here, but what's happening? I, I probably got it, but uh, what does it say? Okay, great. I, I, yeah, so um, I can make it, uh, and a couple other people will be there as well. So, uh, oh, I just made an appointment at four thirty for a call. Okay. Anyhow, um, yeah, uh, if we can get there a little early, that'll be great. But uh, be there at four. Okay, great, great. Uh, okay, sorry. Like what you're about. Yeah, so the, so that was it then, the construction was done, the wars were over in that in that stage. And then, in 1973, I got called, I forget how I got called, but I got called to attend an association group mm-hmm. on Division Avenue, uh, Division right off of Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. And they were complaining that the, land, the Hasidic landlord was trying to get them out of the buildings. At that time, the Hasidic community had begun to develop and really was, uh, was to in, in South Williamsburg, which is actually very, uh, great between here. Division is one block past Broadway, to the to the Navy Yard, to mm-hmm. the river. And uh, they were growing and they were pushing out the what had become Latino families there, and so this is what This is talking like one fifteen Division Avenue. So I go to the meeting, and I tell them. And I bring back my background, which is the organizing legal stuff together, and we talk about it. I said, well, how are we going to do in a fight? But then I got pneumonia, and I was out of the office for about a week, and I came to the building, and the building was empty. But in that week, it all happened. So I, I said to myself, I'll never let that happen again, mm-hmm. and, and again, I guess it reverberated with the, my own history of anti-displacement, and yet, or being displaced myself for other reasons. Um, and then the next two buildings, similar things were happening in the next two buildings. One is one, right across the street, 108 Division, and then 104 Division. And we had, that, that was the beginning of my doing this work. And about six months after I began working with the first 108 Division Avenue, uh, Barbara Schliff, who joined a community organization called Los Surres, the Southside South Side United for Housing, uh, joined and participated with me. It was the organizer in conjunction with me? We worked together in that building. That was the first building we worked on. The first building we worked on together. We've been th- She's still. She's been meeting with the tenants in that building every month since 1974. Um, and what happened was it was the beginning of a lot of stuff that we uh, we won. It was a battle against a Hasidic, uh, or a Hasidic related landlord who actually was in this building before we owned this building right here. We had offices. We came in in 1968, mm-hmm. and uh, there were a lot of private offices here. And he had a, he had his real estate office here, and uh, we organized. We had organized the tenants and um, fighting. We brought court cases, and so I'll, I'll give you some materials about what, what our strategies generally are. But it's an economic war: is hold back the rent and bring affirmative cases and then fight the non-payment cases, take advantage of the non-functionality of the courts mm-hmm. against landlords as opposed to what's going on now otherwise, which is landlords taking care of, forcing tenants to pay because of tenants. And um, so, and it, and, it, and it was a memorable moment because he, I was on the third floor, or I was on the second floor at the time here, or third floor, and he was on the fourth floor, and he invited me upstairs. And I knew him very well, the landlord, Wolf Gunnuth, who passed away. And a survivor of the Holocaust himself, um, and he uh, he said, "This is 1974. I'm going to offer you I offer you four thousand dollars to drop the case, just, just get it done. Four thousand dollars in 1974. So I said, I can't take money myself. I said I'll I'll offer it to the tenants. He says, No, no, it's not for the tenants, it's for you. And his secretary is like, Take it, money, take it. <laughs> and I said, I can't do that. So, so, so uh, he said. The next day or a day later, a guy walks into the building and throws a Molotov cocktail, and half the building is burnt down. Oh, my gosh. And a week after that, it happens again. And all but one tenant remains in the building. So I called the FBI, told him what happened, and an FBI agent came down here. And he said, what should I ask him? And then he spoke to him, and nothing happened. But one person stayed in the building, and We brought the court case that we got and we got the court ordered. We got the first appointed 7a There's a, it's a provision of the law there was actually a dead letter statute that allows for one-third of the tenants in a building to Seek the appointment of an administrator court appointed administrator um, To uh, take the bil- to run a building and bar the landlord from from entering the building and possession of the building If you can show that this has conditions exist and serious hazard. Obviously the courts are reluctant to do it but here it was really big thing, and um, <coughs> so we got the 7A appointed, and uh, and that was that case went pending before the fires, and this this kind of like it, and uh, we got some funding, and Los Suarez, the community organization, lent some money, they had a, build, they had a building survival fund, and they lent some money to the mm-hmm. 7A so, so the other part of the war was the statute had been uh, started in the 50s. There was a guy named Jesse Gray who tried to organize Harlem and a Harlem rent strike. After that was resolved, they passed the, st- the state passed a law allowing for tenants to bring these cases to try to prevent them from having to do rent strikes. Mm-hmm. But only one guy, Bernie Hamph, in the Lower East Side, did these cases. And it was really a dead letter because you couldn't find administrators who were willing to do it because mm-hmm. there was no money involved. It was uh, 3% of the rents and the rents are low. Uh, however, what we did is we asked the court to appoint the head of the community organization, the head of Los Sures who was, a, and you had to be a lawyer or a real estate broker or a, or, or a notary or a, or a, or a um, um, what's it called? Um, you had to be a, a, a licensed broker or an attorney or a CPA. Okay. <laughs> so none of them wanted to do it, but the head of the community organization, Los Sures, was uh, a lawyer. And so we asked the court to appoint him. The court declined to do so. The court insisted upon appoint They didn't want to have yeah. our guy appointed. Mm-hmm. So we had, So step two was we had a, when the 7A administrator was appointed. who was not our guy. We didn't pay rent him. We did a rent strike against him. And he could bring a court case against the tenants for rent. But he had no, he had no money. It would have to come out of his pocket because there was no money, no money in the, tenant, in the uh, 7A. So he backed. The, he, they, he, he withdrew. And we got our guy. And that guy participated, actually, in the re- fixing up the building, mm-hmm. restoring it, and the tenants moved back in. Many of them had gotten into, into new public housing that was being built at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. So their children came in. Or, but many of them, to this day, are people who were involved in those struggles mm-hmm. early on. And, uh, it became and then what happened was it, it, it began a trend. 7A, now a 7A administrator collects the rents, but the rents can only be used for repair and maintenance of the building not for taxes, not for old debts, not for mortgages, not for profit. So if the landlord wanted to retain the building, they had to pay the taxes out of their own pocket or pay those old bills. And in those days, no matter how wealthy these landlords were, and it's it's still somewhat true today with the slumlords, that they hate to pay money out of their own pocket. And in those days, there was so many buildings, they just let it go. You let it go. The city took took it for tax foreclosure. The city didn't want it, so the city then created a program the Tenant Interim Release Program, or the the, uh, 7A Interim Release Program, where they leased the building to the 7A Administrator, the city-owned at that point, Mm -hmm. and they continued the 7A Administration, and then the city developed a a program of converting these to low-income co-ops under a state statute called the uh, Private Housing Finance Law. Housing Development Fund corporations, co-ops built exclusively for persons of low income, and uh, and then they sold the apartments for $250, the shares for the apartments in this car for $250 an apartment to purchase price. And they were able to maintain very low rents. To this day, the rents are, extra, are, are maintained low and continue because it shows you how much money is involved in the profit in these buildings. Without having to make a profit, you can keep rents low and maintain the buildings in a reasonable uh, condition. Mm-hmm. And to this day they have. Now they are Now, and then the same thing happened next door. There, it was not, they didn't burn, she didn't burn, the landl- did not burn, landlady did not burn the building down, but she did everything possible. And we won that case also. Same thing, 7A, and she was out. And she was a wild person. Uh, my wife and my family, once, on Young Kipper you, you go to, or during the Jewish, that, that period of time, you walk to the water and you throw away your sins, symbolically. And the water is near where the concentration of the Hasidic community is. So she saw us going that day, me and my wife and my two young, young kids, uh, and uh, she started screaming at us, and a crowd formed, and we were almost violent. And people called the police and stuff like this, and like we had to watch, our friends surrounded us and watched us out. Mm-hmm. But um, that was the kind of things we got. going on. But we took that building, that was 104 Division, which Barbara still works with to this day, mm-hmm. likewise. Um, and that, was, that began the trend, and we've, uh, we've done lots of buildings over the years. In those days, it was slumlords. Or the Hasidim trying to get the Latinos out to, for for other Hasidim, um, and um, uh, so. Uh, but as I said, people the slumlords, would they would buy buy a building, scare the landlords out in the, on, on the south side, where it was not the Hasidic community, it was something else. the The mainstream Jewish community had moved out, and were replaced by mostly Latinos coming in, but. And th- this is a trend that was tr- throughout larger areas, including most of all New York City, probably uh, uh, even a larger place with that. The, landlo- the, landlo- the brokers, would, sc- uh, would, slum slumlords, would buy the building, scare the landlords out, the Puerto Ricans are coming, and it's gonna be worth nothing, buy the building cheap, sell it to the next slumlord, they'd collect the rents for, uh, uh, and recover their, their investment in two years, mm-hmm. and sell the, sell the, sell the building and, and make a 50% profit on top of that. Uh, recover their investment, then get 50 percent, and then tell to the next landlord that they would paint the hallways and say, we're going to be okay, it's going to be a new world here, do the same exact thing, and then finally they burn the building down, which is very common. Bronx is burning, was a pattern. Here in Williamsburg, we resisted that and took the buildings away from the landlords. Mm-hmm. So that during that period of time, this goes on the 70s and 80s and really to the 90s, uh, with Los Surios and other community organizations in other parts of Williamsburg and Greenpoint, there were over 120 billions that were taken and made into HDFC co-ops as a result of these struggles which continue and the co-ops continue today mm-hmm. in addition to that so that's that's that was a, that was 80% of my of, of the work I've done over the, over the time that with Los source and then with St. Nick's neighborhood St. Luke's Lions now it's called something a little different in East Williamsburg and in South Greenpoint in North Greenpoint, there's north, north Brooklyn Development Corporation. In the north side, there was People's Firehouse and a group called NAG. It was originally Neighbors Against Garbage. Now it's Neighbors Aligned for Good Growth. But that coalition, and, that, and we've expanded to Bushwick over the years, um, Bushwick County Independence Project. Um, so th- that, that was the work, that was the bulk of the work. And then working with those tenants associations and the co-ops to manage the buildings. With, with the organizers. And there were a lot of logistical legal issues and substantive issues, just mechanical issues in terms of managing the building. And our goal has always been with tenants associations or with these co-ops uh, transparency and collective decision making. Reports with everything. All the business is done at ma- monthly meetings. Rents are collected. Rent strike or co-op at the meetings. Receipts are given out at the meetings. Reports are given at the meetings. Checks are signed at the meetings. Only approved by the group and that all the tenants, not a board of directors, but all the tenants participate in majority roles. Uh, so that's 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 a theory and theme. And it's mm-hmm. sometimes it's, you know, nothing is perfect, it doesn't work out exactly that way, but that's the goal and that's how we try to do it. Uh, so that's the, so the bulk of the work was tenant associations and then co-ops because of uh, those issues. And then some of them more recently have had problems because uh, they've gone up in value tremendously. So what people paid $250 for are now worth $300,000. Mm-hmm. And there's pressures for them to sell to people on the side, and, and in some, some situations, a couple of people taking over the building and then try to make profit off of them. We've got to take the buildings back and all those struggles. That's another thing we did. The third thing we do is the community coalitions, um, going back to that period of time, um, and over all kinds of issues, rezonings, um, uh, environmental stuff, We've worked with coalitions over the years, and I, that's, that's another major part of the thing I did. But in the early, and fair housing is one of the major issues that's affected this area and continues to. And one of the first cases that we brought was the Williamsburg Fair Housing, uh, Williamsburg fair housing Committee challenged the city's, the city's behavior in this respect, the shocking behavior in this area, uh, restric- strict racial quotas in public housing, favoring the Hasidic Jewish community and the Jewish community and the community. So when the Jewish community ran out of the south side, White Flight, the mainstream Jewish community, the projects were built, public housing right over here and, and nearby. This is Jonathan Williams' houses and then Independence' houses, together about 1,800 apartments. Uh, I mean, we found out, that, that was 1964 when it opened up. We found that in 1976 when we reviewed the situation that they had been rented up 75% white, and maintained strictly, 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 seventy-five percent white. It was really Jewish mm-hmm. uh, throughout a period. It became a, a refuge for the Jews that were moving out of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. as opposed to other areas where they moved to Los Angeles or the isle- or Long Island. Mm-hmm. Here, many of them stayed here because they got these great apartments. And it was segregated. It was, it was uh, um, in nineteen seventy-six. So we, the Latino community, basically the Puerto Rican community, which is um, which is changed over the years and became more Dominican and now heavy influx of Mexicans and others, but at the time it was all Puerto Rican. They came really after World War II. There was some always there, as was the Hasidic community, but really the Hasidic community and the Puerto Rican community both really came in large numbers for different reasons after World War II. Uh, The Hasidic community escaping the the remnants of the Jewish community in in Europe. Uh, Some of the survivors came, and then the Puerto Rican community came uh, post-war jobs, they they worked, they got jobs here along the waterfront, a uh, lot of construction, and, and they came in really after World War II. And they kind of grew together after World War II. The city community Car- has dramatic patterns of, of childbirth because of religious rules and otherwise. They have the maximum number of ch- uh, children, so every family has twelve or thirteen kids or no kids, but if they have children, they have the maximum number they can have. And so there's a mega growth that way. The Latino community has grown by immigration. So Puerto Rican community grew, 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 and then then replaced uh, by a major influx of Dominicans, and then, as I said, the Mexicans more recently. So, but they have grown together. together. The Puerto Rican Latino community is larger than the Hasidic community, but the Hasidic community votes as a block. I mean, part of the issue with the Hasidic community is that 80% of the population is below 18 because it's the child growth, So that their voting block is, truma- is significantly small the adult population is significantly smaller than the Latino population however, the Hasidic community votes as a block it's led by the by the religious leaders and the secular leaders that dictate how the voting is going block votes, mm-hmm. I'll give you 5,000 votes or 4,000 votes I'll give your opponent 4,000 5,000 votes and I'm not a Democrat or Republican I'm not conservative or liberal I can support a gay black woman over a Jewish guy anytime but here's what I need you to do and nobody wants to lose 8,000 or 10,000 votes, not in the city, not in the state, mm-hmm. and as a result, not federally. When Jimmy Carter ran for president or against Ford, the Hasidic community did not vote till 4 p.m. that afternoon. They held off until the negotiations were settled, and then they finally voted for Carter. And that's, that's gigantic political pressure. So yeah. racial quotas, starting in 64, but New York City, the government, not some private landlordism, is strict. And the waiting list has always been over 90% non-white, usually about 55% black and 40% Latino. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we brought litigation to federal court in 76. Uh, we discovered in the new house. this is because there was new housing going up 1,500 units, again, 75% ra- new racial quotas in 76. And uh, there was one project, 500 apartments, it's New York City public housing, 60% Hasidic, 30% Latino, 10% African American. Every floor is exactly the same format. A, B, C, D lines, Hasidic, E, F, Latino, Latin. despite the thing. And it was maintained that way, that way. So that was So we brought the, law, the lawsuit. We stopped the further development of that. We got a court order barring it. And that was 1976, 77, In 1991. The world changed, and we go back to evaluate because it appeared that new housing is going up along the waterfront. Eleven city, uh, er, new urban renewal development along the waterfront, eleven sites. Every single one was given over to Hasidic developers for Hasidic only purposes either housing for Hasidim only, market rate housing so that the Latinos couldn't afford it anyhow, yeshivas or dormitories, housing for Hasidim, uh, and. Things like that. So we brought also challenged challenge that. We also reviewed the prior situation, the prior court orders, and lo and behold, despite a federal court order, the city maintained that. Remember that development 603010? Between 1976 and, 19, and, 19, and 1991, remained 603010. They violated a federal court order, maintained strict racial and discriminated. So, anyhow, so over the years after that, we worked with the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund. Uh, there was numerous contempt cases through 2005 until at least the city's part of it was ended. These projects, as of 2011, the project remained, all the public housing in this area remained. Every single large apartment is occupied by white families, mainly Hesito. And collectively, only slightly less than 50% of the apartments are occupied by whites. So there's been some change, but the waiting list has been over 90% throughout the whole period of time non-white. So it's Bizarre and shocking. What happens is, uh, Hasidic family move in. In the old days, it was illegal, but then, but then the ones that, were, that remained there were illegal. They they have their children stay the legal occupants and they move out and leave mm-hmm. with their children generation to generation. There's some hocus pocus also with them. Um, so that continues to be an issue. Anyway, so we did a lot of litigation about that, and <coughs> there are other things like the Williamsburg Waterfront in 2005, we negotiated, represented the coalition that negotiated a settlement with the city, no, no, no litigation, but representation of the groups and demonstrations and negotiations with the city to maximize the amount of affordable housing that was available. We now involved in mega-litigation involving the Broadway Triangle area, mm-hmm. which is a large urban rural area at the intersection of Bed-Stuy and Williamsburg, <coughs> because, once again, the Bloomberg administration uh, gave over 60% of the city on territory to a Hasidic coalition with Assemblyman Vito Lopez, who was very political, a very powerful political figure at the time, the head of the Kings County Democratic Party, and, uh, and zoned it in a way that would only accommodate the needs of the Hasidic community low-rise, they don't use the elevators on the Sabbath, and um, just uh, also limiting the rezoning only the Williamsburg side. Williamsburg remains only 5% black, despite a lot of blacks living in public housing in the area, mm-hmm. a lot of public housing. So there's obviously no African Americans living outside of public housing in Williamsburg Greenpoint. Less than 5% black. Mm-hmm. Bed-Stuy, right across the border, all within the Broadway Triangle or Renewal Area is, was over 75%, really close to 90% African American for most of that period of time. Recently, it's 75%. The only reason the Williamsburg side, they had some kind of excuses for doing so, but the real reason was they give 50% preference for affordable housing to be built in these areas to residents of the local area. In this case, Community Board 1, favoring the city community. If they had included Community Board 3, also, which is Bet Stuy, it would have diluted the amount of apartments they would have gotten. So all this craziness going on, with litigation, but uh, at one time we actually came together with the city community uh, because the city had planned uh, to um, kind of deal with the uh, when they closed the um, garbage sites that they the dumped when they dumped all the garbage in Staten Island. And Staten Island, when they if they built the Verrazano Bridge, they would, they finally closed down the landfill in Staten Island where all the garbage in the city was dumped so they had to find out what do we do with the garbage now so the plan was to have a single uh, garbage incinerator in each borough and they were going to start at Williamsburg of course in Brooklyn and the the Brooklyn incinerator was going to be a 57 story incinerator right at the Navy Yard Mm -hmm. right next to public housing Mm -hmm. you know so so the Hasidic community and Latino community came together and we marched over the over the Williamsburg bridge to City Hall and all kinds of stuff but it was a great thing it came together and uh, they forced the city not to do it. So stuff like that. So, that's, mm-hmm. it's, so it's a combination. I did a lot of press stuff also to get attention to these things and help work with, you know, so it's, it's, I would say we're like Wall Street lawyers in a way because we don't just do the litigation. We're in-house counsel to the groups as well. We work very closely with the groups. Mm-hmm. What would you say the majority of issues that you're dealing with now as opposed to sort of decades ago or at the beginning are? Well, unfortunately, like I said, the Broadway Triangle is a very active case. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, it continues to be issues like that. But rezonings, Mm -hmm. uh, displacement pressures created by the, it used to be the slumlords, now it's gentrification Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. huge displacement pressures. So, the rezoning allowing for uh, the creation of market rate housing, even if you have a significant (coughs) amount 20, 30% of affordable housing, A, the definition of affordable is not so affordable to our communities but B, the construction of market-rate housing um, does not meet that demand that creates the demand. It becomes a magnet, a yeah. huge displacement pressure. So it's a war. We have, so, so just like with the slumlords, but now it's a war against landlords. If they can get $5,000 for a two-bedroom apartment, they can get $2,500 for a two-bedroom apartment, and the people are paying illegal rent, stabilized rent of seven, and struggling to pay $743, they'll kill to get the people out Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. And uh, so we've had, uh, and a lot of it's criminality. I'll show you a, uh, um, a op-ed piece we did for the Daily News recently, last month, uh, that says that the, there's a massive amount of criminal behavior that is being treated as housing cases, but actually it's totally criminal behavior. You know, uh, threatening people, burning buildings down, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's a war, and we continue to do. That's a massive amount of work. Is also well. representing, orga- working with the organizers, continuing working with the tenants, mm-hmm. and then the, the, also the the, the ops remain a major issue. Also sustaining them and dealing with all the issues that they have. So it's a lot of the same stuff. What has kept you coming back to this work? Well, I think, like I said, my my my, my, um, my childhood, having lost my community, and not wanting to have to see it happen to others. The successes, the it's very um, empowering. My career, I've been blessed because I've had situations where really, it's not individual low-income people who have no power. It's showing people who are low-income coming together and having power and winning the battles, and, uh, and the affirmative battles, and, uh, and not just use, and not allowing the courts to dominate. Uh, empowering people to, to force landlords and the rest of the world to realize that they have to deal with them. And unfortunately, that continues with the new mayor mm-hmm. uh, where unfortunately he talks a good game, but a lot of what's happened there continues to be the same stuff at the street level. Now I don't know if it's non-functionality he can't control at the street level. A lot of the people who work in the city are carryovers for old administrations and old visions. The Bloomberg vision was benign neglect. Let port- Don't to help poor people let them move out of the neighborhoods and then let's get rich people in who pay higher taxes and good for the city's economy and vibrant New York City. Mm-hmm. Build new parks but not for the people who live there but for the people who going to live there. Um, and unfortunately that continues to be very much the case despite claims of otherwise. And also there's been a lot of uh, attention to the uh, Blasio reaching out to the Orthodox, the Haredi, the Hasidic Jewish community. And... Again, trying to work with them, trying to get their support. There's been articles in the, in the New York Times about that recently also, about the whole um, circumcision thing, but they said it was a much larger issue in terms of him uh, trying to accommodate and, and make friends with the, his city community. And unfortunately, I believe that this is part of what's going on here as well. We also are involved in major battles now with the city under the Bloomberg administration, but unfortunately it continues today. The city has abandoned daycare centers and senior centers in the neighborhood, uh, allowing them to allow, allow not renewing leases that are mm-hmm. sending the name and allowing them to be forced out, which is the infrastructure of our community. Um, and part of it is was was the old benign neglect situation. But now the Blasio administration—I don't know what it is because it's shocking. It's inconsistent with what he claims is the behavior, but the two buildings that we're talking about that we work with very closely, two eleven Ainsley, Swing 60 Senior Center, has been there for over forty years, and, uh, and Small World Daycare Center at the same place. Who owns it? Hasidic people connected to the leadership, the Hasidic community. And um Way Senior Center, which has been involved I which I've been involved with since the nineteen early nineteen seventies. And it was really great daycare nurturing its community center it's part of the community and sustains the community and provides all that, enables low-income people to work and, uh, and, and enables kids to be taken care of in a loving environment, a nurturing a neighborhood-based environment. Um, also, that building is owned by the Hasidic people who are probably connected to, to the Hasidic leadership who are connected to the Basque. Uh, so that's the only thing I can think of in terms of why the, the administration has not move to protect these places and, and, mm-hmm. and allow them to be going we're fighting that we're going to win we always win but the question is how much of a battle is it yeah. I think we're coming up towards half an hour is there anything else you want to add we haven't covered. not really I mean uh, also the block where I live I've lived mm-hmm. there for 40, almost over 40, 40 42 three years that's become a new, new village everybody knows each other and despite the pressures elsewhere most of the buildings on my block and you know, somewhere in the surrounding area are are owned by nonprofits mm. or HDFCs mm-hmm. and uh, a, lot, a lot of the people have remained or their children are the for age and so it's, like, it's again it's like the, the, like the village kind of environment and supportive and nurturing and friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been a very good part of my life as well. Well thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Not at all, it's my pleasure.